Let's pray together. Father, we ask for the grace, the grace of the Holy Spirit to see your son Jesus as he is. We pray, Lord, for the grace to pay attention to him, to devote our lives to him, to let him speak to us. We pray, Lord, that we would receive the power we need to follow him and reflect him in our world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Good to see you all. Some of you know that our Bishop Stuart Ruck recently was in Nigeria. He went over there to help lead a series of revival meetings uh, that thousands and even uh, upward to 10,000 people came to. And there were many people in Nigeria that came to know Jesus for the first time, dedicated their lives to him for the first time, experienced renewal or were confirmed into the church. And uh, it was a, a truly like miraculous and intense time. And, but in, in the process of that, even though Stuart took very good care to stay healthy, uh, Bishop Stuart got heat stroke and contracted kidney stones. And as they would find later, had kidney failure. Um, at one point in the, after all the meetings were over, while he was still staying in northern Nigeria, he had this realization in the middle of the night, in the middle of incredible, excruciating pain, of this, the thought came to him, I actually have to get home, and I have to get home as soon as possible. I cannot wait for my return flight. I cannot wait for the plans to unfold as we had planned for them to. I actually have to get home now. And so whatever it takes, let's make it happen. What that meant was that Archbishop Ben Kawashi had to get him into a urologist to uh, get him cleared to fly commercial. What that meant is that they had to travel by in the backseat of a car for five and a half bumpy hours through the mountains of Nigeria to get to the capital of Nigeria so that he could be uh, cleared for release It meant that they uh, got on a plane and uh, flew to France and found a way to get rerouted back to the United States. And it meant that when they arrived in Terminal 5 of O'Hare Airport, that an ambulance met them at the plane, ushered Bishop Stewart off, and whisked him away to a hospital where he continued to get care. Um, I'm so glad that Stewart had that clarity of mind in northern Nigeria in the middle of the night, I have to get home now. When he did, and when he did get medical care, the doctors told him, the only reason you're alive is that you're young and you're healthy. Um, So imagine being as urgent to get to Jesus as Stuart was to get home. Um, Maybe Jesus for you feels a thousand miles away. And the reality of his kingdom seems like a head game to you. Uh, Maybe you feel cynical or disenchanted with the idea that Jesus um, wants you to come to him and wants to be with you and wants to change your life. Maybe the flow of your life just doesn't include Jesus. You're aware he's there, but you just kind of end up missing him because of the way life works for you. Imagine what it would be like to move heaven and earth to be in Jesus's presence. What would it be like to resist all the pressures that would keep you from Jesus, all of the habits 
that keep you from Jesus, all of the forces beyond you that would keep you from being with Jesus in this season of Advent. As we wait for him, we're waiting expectantly. We're trying to get into his presence to be healed, to be changed, to be loved, to carry out our calling in his name. Our gospel reading from Matthew shows us what this level of urgency looks like in the, uh, the Magi, the wise men, the, the, the men who traveled from a faraway land. When they had a realization, as they were uh, many miles away from Jesus, they had a realization, we've got to get to Jesus. We've got to get to the King of Israel to find out who he is and to be in his presence. And as we read this story, as we go through it, I'm praying that uh, their urgency to get to Jesus becomes our urgency to get to Jesus so that we can fully embrace our Advent posture, even though there's a many other different pressures that feel a lot more present and real that would keep us from it. Let's turn to Matthew 2, and we'll read about the, the journey of the wise men. Matthew 2, we're looking at verses 1 through 12. So, uh, reading, with, uh, reading along um, in your Bibles or bulletins, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So here Jesus is. He's born in the southern part of the Holy Land. He would live most of his life in the northern part, in kind of Galilee, Nazareth. That's where he was born. That's where he gathered his disciples. That's where he did most of his ministry. He actually wouldn't return uh, to Jerusalem very often, um, but when he did, he encountered a lot of conflict, and that's where he was crucified, outside of Jerusalem. Here he is born, into, uh, born to Mary and Joseph in a bedroom community outside the city of Jerusalem. And, uh, and here you have, all of a sudden, you've got these uh, exotic people, these, this group of men uh, arriving. And they're saying, where is he, verse two, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So these magi, these what sometimes are referred to as wise men, are a professional class of priests from an eastern city like Babylonia. That's most likely where they came from. This is modern-day Syria or Iraq. And they watched the sky. They gave their personal attention to the stars in the sky. They would watch uh, the movement of the planets. They would watch the movement of the stars to try to discern what God's will was, who God was. And this is sort of a Romans 1 situation, the, the heavens declaring the glory of God, and these magi are paying attention the best way they know how. We don't know their full spiritual state. We just know that they were being attentive to, some, they were being attentive to creation in some way. And at some point, God spoke their language. As Romans 1 talks about God, God doing that through creation, like God speaking about his glory to people who are paying attention to it. And in some supernatural way, God provided a star, uh, and maybe it was a planetary movement or something, and it clicked for them that this meant, it was specific enough that it meant, wow, there's a new king born in, to Israel. And it's, a new, it's not just a new king, it's a, a legitimate king that deserves our allegiance and our homage and our personal presence. We're actually going to go. I recently watched a movie called The Nativity, great movie, not to be confused with The Nativity Story, which apparently is also a great movie. 
Um, they're both about the same thing, the birth of Christ. I saw the nativity, full stop. Um, and it pictures this, like what the wise men had to go through to, to arrive to uh, Bethlehem, which is really eye-opening. And in the story of the nativity, what it pictured was a whole kind of class of magi who watched the stars for a living and had regular meetings and consultations, as any of us would at work. And, uh, and a few of them having the urgency to go, there's something happening in the sky, and they're putting the pieces together, and they're realizing we have to go. And, and the others are like, no, let's wait and see. Maybe, maybe we'll get another confirmation. And there was a few of them that were like, no, we've got to go, and we've got to go now. And if you, if you look at the geography, actually, um, there's 800 miles in between uh, Babylonia and cities around Babylonia and Bethlehem. 800 miles. Now, for us, 800 miles is a pain in the neck. To go in a gasoline-powered car on paved American highways, an 800-mile journey to Montreal, okay, or Charlotte, or Dallas is a long time in the car with potty breaks and toll booths and uncomfortable beds and, um, and packing and lots of inconvenience, okay, so an 800-mile journey for us is no big thing, give, even given our infrastructure. For the Magi, 800 miles would have been taken by camel, okay, through the desert. It would have required weeks of planning and weeks, maybe months, of travel back and forth. It would have cost money. It would have cost time. It would have cost energy. You would really have to kind of move heaven and earth to get from Babylonia to Bethlehem. So what kind of urgency did they have? I mean, they, they, uh, um, they really made the commitment. I imagine even being like 11 days into this journey. Imagine being one of the magi, and you've decided you're going, and you, you've got the whole entourage, right? And it's like day 11, and all of the magic and the, just the romance of a road trip has worn away, and you've seen nothing but sand for the last week. Your stupid camel kicked you in the shoulder when you were trying to set up your tent. Um, you're nursing a headache, uh, and you've got a sore back, and all you want is like a hot bath and a hot meal and your own bed, uh, but you get to sleep on sand, and all you have left to eat is some lambus bread. And you just think to yourself, what are we doing? What are we doing? What were we thinking? Um, and then you lay down, you fold your hands behind your head, and you look up at the vast Middle Eastern sky. And you see what you've been watching your whole professional life. You see the stars, and they're huge, and they're shining. They look like they're right in front of you. And then you see again that star that sticks out and just shines at you. And you know there's a king in Israel. You know there's a, there's a king that deserves my allegiance and my honor and my homage, and I gotta get to him. You know that God loves you enough to speak your language, to tell you when it was time to go see him. And so you go to sleep and you dream about whatever magi dream about, and then you wake up and you get back on the camel and you keep 
taking the long obedience in the same direction towards Bethlehem, towards Jerusalem. Um, So they've got to know who the king is. They've got to find out. They've got to be with him. Verse 2 gives us a great question. I, I love this question for Advent. I love this question for the Christian life. Our own long obedience in the same direction. Where is he? Where is he? That's the question that gets sparked in Advent. Where is Jesus? We know he came the first time. We need him to come again. We're almost on our tiptoes, craning our neck to see Jesus again, to see him come with power and great glory as he came in humility the first time. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? You know, this question gets us rearranging our life. It becomes the question that hangs over all of our minutes and days and hours as we wait for Christmas. We want to see the answer. We want to taste the answer. We want to know where Jesus is. We want to know what he has to say. We want to know how he wants to move in our life. We want to know how he wants to move in our church and move in our world. So we ask the question with the Magi. It's the question of anyone who wants to see Jesus. Maybe you've never met him before, but you want to know, who is Jesus? It's one of the most important questions you could ever ask. It's one of the most important questions you could ever get an answer to. And the powers of the age don't want you to ask that question. The powers of the age um, don't want you seeking after the presence of Christ. Notice the tremor and the unrest that results from wise men asking a provocative question like, where is he? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Verse three, what happens? When Herod, when Herod the king heard this, Herod the king who had a um, kind of a sketchy path to power, um, he like married in to, to um, the Jewish people and um, he was a, a paranoid, insecure uh, as we learn later in, in, in Matthew 2 and in history, uh, he had a tenuous grasp of power over the Jewish people. He had Rome's support, kind of. He had the Jewish leader support, kind of. And he was like hanging on to it and it's like very easily threatened. And so um, not a legitimate king and not a kind and good and just ruler. The kind of ruler that would willingly throw people under the bus willingly kill people to keep his uh, grasp on the reins of power. So when you've got some people from the east going, hey, we've been watching the stars and there's something happening. There's a king born to Israel, a legitimate king. Well, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. It was just shorthand for all the little fiefdoms inside Jerusalem, all those little fiefdoms, all those spiritual fiefdoms, uh, the, the chief priests who, um, you know, make some coin from all the pilgrimage, all the, all the scribes, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the kind of the people who like, it's working pretty well for them to not have Jesus as king. And they would like the allegiance of exotic people like the Magi. They would love that allegiance. Whatever gifts the Magi are going to give to Jesus, that, bring that to Jerusalem, don't go to the little bedroom community of, of Bethlehem. They're all troubled. This is going to be a major disruption to their life. If there's a new king in Israel who's so legitimate that wise men from the east would travel 800 miles to see him 
Herod has a problem on his hands. If, if there's a just king, if there's a wise king, uh, then the foolish king and the unjust king has a problem on his hands. He's got a legitimate challenger. Listen, if there's a compassionate high priest who can sympathize with human weaknesses because he became one of us and who, who would come to give his life and, and then to, to, to give his body and blood to give his Holy Spirit, to pray for us constantly. If there's a compassionate high priest, then all of the corrupt chief priests have a problem on their hands. If there's a true shepherd in Israel who cares about the sheep, instead of wanting to fleece them, then all of the hired hands have a problem on their hands. Listen, when people move heaven and earth to get to Jesus, when they actually rearrange their life to show devotion to King Jesus. Um, what the scriptures call the powers and the principalities, which are unseen forces behind everything we see, the powers and principalities have a problem on their hands when people made in God's image wanna get to Jesus. So the stakes are as high as you can imagine them being, being in Jesus's presence, devoting your life to him. The stakes are as high as you can imagine. Um, so in recent days, the Chinese government has begun, begun rounding up Christians all over China. Uh, Laura, my wife, is part of an international group called Pericaleo. It's a group of church planting wives that are part of uh, um, church plants in urban centers all over the world. And she told me that, um, that others in this group, other church planters in China, their wives are, are, are recounting that their husbands are being taken into prison. The Chinese government has specifically targeted Early Rain Covenant Church, which is an evangelical church in a major city in China. And here's the, here's the charge they've brought them up on. Stirring up trouble. Doing exactly what we're doing this morning. Like zero difference gathering together under the banner of King Jesus, seeking his presence, seeking his face. The Chinese government right now sees that as stirring up trouble. Why? Well, they're not accepting the Chinese government's ideology that, uh, uh, that, the, that the Chinese government is the ultimate ruler over the Chinese people. They're saying, we respect the temporary rulers of China, but you're temporary. We sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. O come, desire of nations, bind all people in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. Fill the whole world with, with heaven's peace. That's what we sing. That's what they sing. The Chinese government says, no, we do that. We fill the whole world with heaven's, heaven's peace. And early reign covenant church and others are saying, no, he fills the world with heaven's peace. And that's stirring up trouble here in our world. When we gather to worship Jesus, or when we spend our time during the week in his presence, that's gonna stir up trouble, seen and unseen, as we resist all the pressures that come against us being in the presence of Christ. Um, so uh, Caitlin Scheiss wrote an essay this week 
for Christ in pop culture called Advent is actually quite political. And here's what she said. In, in it, she notes, the sentimentality and commercialism of Christmas can threaten to squash our observance of both Advent and Christmas. Both seasons have a deeply countercultural and other political nature. Uh, they have the power to turn our community into a preview of the coming kingdom of God. Do you see what's happening here? There's a cosmic significance to the living church waiting for Jesus, looking for Jesus, honoring Jesus. That means that we're going to devote our whole lives to him. And there are powers and principalities, both seen and unseen, including but not limited to the sentimentality of Christmas, which would love your devotion and your money. And so when we actually give our devotion to Jesus and are satisfied in him, we are set free from being pushed around and seduced and manipulated by the powers of this age. There's even internal pressures to not pay attention to Jesus. Even the, the Herod inside, let's be honest, can sometimes get troubled when we present ourselves to Jesus to be transformed by him. The inner Herod that says, you better get to work, you better prove yourself, you better show everybody how busy you are, how important you are, you better, you better be productive today, you better not be unproductive today. The internal anxiety, the angst and unrest that, is, uh, that, that pushes back when we put ourselves into the presence of Christ. Um, even our own wandering minds can push, push us against paying attention to Jesus. Or maybe there might be family pressures at Christmas time to participate in all of the activities, to do all of the traditions, or maybe give allegiance to a matriarch or a patriarch that wants your allegiance. Some of us really feel this battle in Advent more than any other time of the year because all of the expectations and the heavy pressures and the, the demands on time, money, energy, and spiritual loyalties that rise up at Christmas time. Uh, so anything that's not aligned with Jesus inside our own bodies and souls, communities, families, or world will get troubled like Herod got troubled, like the chief priest got troubled. So what do the troubled powers do when the wise men come to be in Jesus's presence? Um, they go on a seek and destroy mission. Um, Herod, you can see in verse four, he, he uh, has kind of a secret meeting with all of them to figure out the problem and snuff it out. He assembles the chief priests and scribes and inquires of them, kind of presses them for information on where the Christ was to be born. And drawing from the Old Testament, drawing from Micah and 2 Samuel, they say, well, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Um, so they're looking to the Old Testament, which says, hey, look, the true king of David, the true king of Israel is a son of David, He's gonna be born in Bethlehem. And so then Herod sends the wise men to find him. Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them uh, what time the star had appeared. So the Jerusalem leaders told them um, where the Messiah would be, where the king of Israel would be. And then the wise men told them when he was born. 
And so now Herod sends them, verse eight, sends them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And just for a moment, I wanna say that it's interesting to me that Herod pretends to be okay with Jesus. And, and there, are, there are a lot of these forces that we've been talking about inside ourselves, families, our culture, our world that will say, sure, go ahead. You wanna worship Jesus, that's fine, but, and there's a caveat, and there's a co-opting of our faith, and we can never let that happen. We can never let ourselves uh, have our allegiance to Jesus be divided or diluted or redirected. It can never be a, sure, go look for him, but. And the wise men later will resist that. Uh, Political incentive given to them, maybe the threat given to them. So the stakes of getting to Jesus are as high as you can imagine, but we've got to get to him. The Magi have to get to him. Um, But once we're in his presence, something shifts, something changes from the inside out, and it's beautiful, and it's exactly what Jesus came to do, was to set us free. Verse nine, um, after listening to the king, they, the Magi went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So this star's movement is specific enough so they know the household. They don't have to go door to door. It's not approximate. This is like when Google Maps is doing its job. It's like, you have arrived. This is what the front door looks like. Go inside of it. And so, um, man, after all that, uh, all the weeks and months of planning and costliness and traveling through the desert and all those, all those nights and, and all the, the pain of that is finally over. And verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And I just wish you could see all the, the Matthew's got like, he crams in like three dozen words for big and joy and big time joy and rejoicing in this little uh, verse. And, um, and so, you know, I don't know if you've ever had a time when you've rejoiced like that. I scared my children recently during a Bears game. Um, there was a touchdown. It was just like, whoa, dad, um, I haven't seen that side to you. Um, some of you get like this when Wendell Berry puts out a new book or maybe when you win the Hamilton lottery. Um, you know, they're laughing and crying maybe at the same time. They're like, this is incredible, this moment we've been waiting for our whole life. And they were so glad to get to Jesus. They were so glad they finally arrived. And so verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So here you have the Magi, and they're, they're, they're before the, the object of their desire. They're finally in the presence of Christ. So it's like, what do you do? Like, you've traveled for 800 miles or something like that. You've gone through all this stuff. You've resisted the pressures. You're finally in the presence of Christ. What do you do? And so they reached deep into their bags, and they, and they pulled out treasures that people would fight over in their country like really rare stuff that was personally prized and comes at great cost. You have gold, which is, you know, uh, treasure. You have frankincense, which is 
which are spices that are really rare in the ancient world. And then you have myrrh. You have a kind of a, a scented perfume that is also rare. Um, it's hard for us to imagine these things as precious because they sound like chintzy gifts, like kitschy stuff that you would get in the checkout line of TJ Maxx. You know what I mean? Like frankincense um, or like 10% off online somewhere, like kind of strange gifts. And so I was thinking about like in our culture, what has this kind of value? Um, what fits this description of um, costly, passionately sought after, passionately given gifts? And there was one gift that I thought of that really seemed to fit this description in many ways and be, is becoming actually, it seems like every year is becoming more and more valuable and more and more precious in our culture, in our urban culture, in our technology culture. And that is our undistracted attention. Like, who do you pay attention to over a, for, a, for a long period of time? Who do you give your emotional energy to be present to? to listen to them, to adore them, to converse with them. And then here's the key, when it becomes boring and your notifications start going off, who do you silence your phone for without looking at your phone? That's, I think, our version of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And in fact, that's been monetized and is becoming increasingly fought over. Our headspace, uh, it's hard for us to even keep it for ourselves. So who do we pay attention to uh, after it gets boring? That's one of the most precious gifts we can reach into with our life and give. Uh, so how might we give this gift to Jesus? Well, one of the ways that we do that is here, and I want you to know I appreciate how, uh, how when you show up, I really feel you are showing up to Jesus and you're paying attention to him and you're listening to him. It's a joy to shepherd this church for that reason and to worship with you, it encourages me. So when we leave this place, how do we do it? Because it's one thing to, to experience it, it's another thing to operationalize it into our life, schedule, and bodies. And so one of the ways that we do that is um, through, through just being with Jesus in silence and solitude. I've talked about this before, I'll talk about it again, but we're actually going to practice it together right now. And this is where we, we sit comfortably, and I'm sorry for the heat. It's a little hot in here. Um, uh, it'll be a, a challenge, but we can give that to Jesus. We'll just breathe naturally and deeply in and out, and we'll begin to focus our attention on the person of Jesus. And maybe we can close our eyes and be there with the Magi, contemplating that this is, the, this is our king who's come to be among us. Or maybe if that's hard, we, we look at the cross and we think about the fact that he was there for, out of love for us. And then when we have distracting thoughts that come to our mind, we just give those to Jesus. We just put those right in his hands. So I'm gonna set the timer on my iPhone. You'll be used for kingdom purposes. And um, <laughs> for three minutes, okay? And this actually helps me in my own day-to-day, -day, setting a timer of like, I'll just... I need to be with Jesus, so, but it's going to be hard. So anyway, this gives me a goal. And so we're going to start with three minutes, and it's going to feel weird because it's not normal in our culture to do this. And yet we need to be in the presence of Christ. So I'm going to invite all of us 
to be in his presence for three minutes, and then uh, we'll close at the end. Holy Spirit, would you help us be attentive to the Savior of the world? In Jesus' name, amen. I'll just leave you with one final thought. I hope the Lord met you and uh, that he worked his grace in your life in those few moments we had with him. You know, our, our, our narrative ends with an act of defiance. Uh, in verse 12, uh, God uh, warned the wise men in a dream not to return to Herod, to disobey one of the most murderous, powerful men in that region. 
and they departed to their, un- other, to their own country by another way and, and broke free of the schemes of the, of the day. All of us need the freedom to do this in our own life. Uh, Jesus' kingship, his rulership over the world gets extended through free sons and daughters that have given them their whole devotion who can then receive the power they need to walk in obedience, uh, to, uh, to resist all that stands in opposition to Jesus, um, and to show with their life and with their devotion who the true king of Israel is and who the true king of the world is. May we, as we spend time with Jesus, receive the power we need uh, to walk in freedom and to follow the light of the world for the good of the world. And let's do this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.